Hello and welcome to the Valor Christian Academy Bible Study, Holy Holy. Over the past few weeks, we have walked through passages in the Old Testament that unveil various elements of God's holiness in our relationship to it. Today, we arrive in the New Testament and see a new way of relating to holiness. Throughout the Old Testament, God's holiness is sometimes seen as unapproachable. When Moses encounters God in the burning bush, he is told to remove his sandals, for he is standing on holy ground. When God appears over Mount Sinai to give the Israelites the covenant, he tells those who had touched the mountain of God must be put to death. And later, when the Ark of the Covenant is constructed and the Ten Commandments put inside of it, anyone who touches it would be immediately killed. Finally, when Isaiah stands in the presence of God in Isaiah 9, he despairs because he is a man of unclean lips, and he believes that his death is upon him. People in the Old Testament were afraid of God's holiness, and based on many of their experiences, it would be hard to blame them. What happens then when holiness takes on flesh and makes its dwelling among us? Jesus' incarnation forces us to reconsider everything we know about holiness. Previously, we were unable to draw near to God because of our sin. So what happens when God, as the Son, draws near to us? Let's dive in. I think one of the most unintentionally funny scenes in the Bible is when angels appear to the shepherds to announce Jesus' birth. If you've ever seen a nativity set before, your imagination, like mine, is probably largely influenced by the two or three dudes in white robes who are supposed to be the angels the nativity set inevitably has hanging around. When this great multitude of angels appear to the shepherds, the image in my mind was one of a bunch of conventionally handsome men in white robes. The only thing that would distinguish them from normal people was the fact that they're shining and they're floating a few feet off the ground. Scripture doesn't say whether or not the angels that appear to the shepherds look any particular way, but Every other description of angels in the Bible shows them to look as far from conventionally handsome as possible. No, angels are terrifying creatures. They're covered with eyes, they have three sets of wings, and they're constantly flying around in all directions. So, what's funny about this scene to me is when the angels appear, they know exactly what they look like, and the first thing out of their mouth is, do not be afraid. It'd be like if the monster from the movie Aliens said that to Ripley. It might be well-intentioned, but if it were me, it wouldn't do much good. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but I know that people have the innate ability to read the thousands of tiny signals that other people give off and interpret them to better understand how to deal with the person giving off those signals. If a person is smiling, we feel capable of approaching them, and if they're frowning, it causes us to relate to them in a completely different way. The plethora of visual or verbal cues a person gives off helps us grow in our ability to relate to and grow alongside these people. The Sea of Galilee is situated in a bizarre topographical area. Situated between the Transjordan Desert and the Mediterranean Sea, there exists a sort of wind tunnel that is aimed right over the sea. Because of this, storms can appear from seemingly nowhere. Even today, men who work on the Sea of Galilee with access to all the meteorological technology available to them, have to be cautious of sudden, violent storms appearing. 
In Mark 4, the disciples are in a boat traveling across the Sea of Galilee. And wouldn't you know it, a violent storm suddenly appears. The storm is violent, and the disciples fear that the ship is going to break apart and they will drown. In the midst of their panic, they turn to Jesus, believing he will be able to do something about their situation. And where do the disciples find Jesus? Asleep, seemingly unbothered and unfazed by the scene unfolding all around him. Once the disciples wake Jesus up, Jesus assesses the situation and easily calms the storm by telling the winds to be still. The parts of the disciples' brains that help them understand and relate to people must be going haywire at this point. There isn't much of a precedent for this kind of thing happening. What kind of man is this? The disciples ask themselves. This is a new way of living. I have to imagine the author of Hebrews had this scene in the back of their mind when they talked about Jesus as the forerunner of our faith. Through Jesus, we begin to see a completely different way of living. It is holiness that makes Jesus stand out from anything they had seen before, and later, Jesus will call them towards that exact same holiness, and he will expect the same thing out of us. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus forces people to make a decision about who he is. Is Jesus everything that he claims to be and presents himself as, or is he a faker and a fraud, not deserving of any of the attention Scripture gives to him? In this moment on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples are faced with one of those moments. What kind of man is this, they ask themselves. The significance of this question cannot be overstated. The disciples eventually will decide that this man is, in fact, the Messiah, and their actions speak to how seriously they take that decision. The same is true for us. Jesus presents us with moments of his holiness in undeniable ways, and we are forced to make a decision about it. Ultimately, whatever we decide about Jesus' holiness must be reflected in our own holiness. The decision that we make and our actions that follow that decision put a lot of weight on us as believers. The good news, however, is that Jesus is more committed to us than we could ever be to him. In Luke 5, Jesus walks down to the shore of the Sea of Galilee and asks Peter how the night of fishing has been. It's been a long night, and Peter has nothing to show for it. Jesus instructs him to throw his nets out one more time, and suddenly, Every single fish in the sea decides to jump into Peter's net. Peter gets back to the shore and back to Jesus and falls at his feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Someone utterly holy has come into Peter's midst, and all he can think is, I do not deserve to be around this person. If we're being honest, Peter is probably right to think this. God's holiness is so utterly beyond us. Drawing back to the first session, it is similar to drawing close to the sun. At some point, it would be destructive to us. Jesus, however, is here to stay. To Peter's joy, Jesus' response to the request to leave is, Come to me, and I will give you rest. Jesus is here to introduce us to the next step in God's continually unfolding story of holiness. No longer does it cause separation. From now on, it will be an opportunity for us to draw closer to God. The book of Leviticus unpacks a lot of the ritual purity standards the Israelites had to abide by. There were a plethora of things that could make a person unclean. Touching a dead body, 
being around sick people, touching blood, touching certain animals, certain types of fabric. If an unclean animal touched a pot of clay, everything in it became unclean, and the pot had to be broken. There was a lot to keep up with, and being unclean meant they would need to go through a lengthy process to make themselves clean once more before they could rejoin the communal life of their friends and family. This is all about to change, however, when Jesus arrives and introduces us to a new way of thinking about holiness. As I've already said, touching a dead body, a person with a skin disease, such as leprosy, or blood, would make a person unclean. Jesus is in direct contact with people experiencing these issues multiple times. Matthew 9, 20-22 describes Jesus healing the woman with the issue of blood. Mark 1, 40-45, along with numerous other stories, describe Jesus healing people with leprosy. And Luke 8, 43-48 tells the story of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. This being one of the many times he raises someone from the dead. Typically, these kinds of direct exposure to someone who is unclean would have made Jesus unclean. He would have been required to go through a difficult and lengthy process to make himself ritually pure again before being able to join communal and religious life in Israel. At each of these stories, however, we do not see Jesus going through this process. Why is that? The reason is because of the new way to think about holiness that Jesus wants to introduce us to. Where unclean or unholy things used to transfer their unholiness to whoever touched them, Jesus now transfers his holiness to us. When the disciples were left awestruck by Jesus' command over creation on the Sea of Galilee, they understood they were in the presence of something utterly different, something utterly holy that they had never encountered before. When Peter begged Jesus to leave because he was unholy, Jesus refused because he was not worried about being tainted by Peter's unholiness. He was there to offer his holiness to Peter. The same is true of us. Because of Jesus, long gone are the days of worrying if we are able to enter into the presence of God because of what we have done. Our holiness comes from a source beyond ourselves, but is here for us. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ transfers his righteousness to us. A holiness we did not earn is given to us. We can now go boldly into God's presence and depart, not shamed by our sin, but empowered by the knowledge of what God has done for us, and eager to share that gospel, that same transferred holiness to the entire world.